Persuasive words. I'm Scott Jones, and I'm Rocket Bill Bohr, <laughs> <laughs> and we are here recording in the bunker. It's actually what's strange is it's incredibly well lit in here, and it's evening. It is evening, and uh, again, that's uh, funny. You know, we opened worship with that song last week, and it really got people going. It was moving, inspiring. It was. And it was. Yeah. Bill, what are we talking about this evening? It's a Thursday evening, and by the way. We should just comment on the fact that Trump has been to Mexico, and they did discuss the wall, but payment was not discussed. Yeah, yeah. And he came back. I, you know what's weird about a wall? On one level, I don't react strong. Like, when I thought about it tonight, I was like, well, is a wall bad? I just don't know. Is a wall of fact? Like, would it keep, even if it was technologically, I just don't know what a wall... It's just a very interesting thing, a wall. Like, what yeah. does a wall do? Like, what is like what kind of wall are we talking? Like, is it... I'm interesting objectively. Like, okay, border, porous borders are a problem. You know, it can be at least, you know, and, and, and like, especially in an age of terror and things like that. But I'm right. just saying, it's a wall. Like, I wouldn't even know how to evaluate... Yeah, and and he, I don't think he spent much time in that region. I, I actually lived there for three years uh, in West Texas, and where Mexico begins and Texas ends and vice versa, it's a very fluid situation down there. And I I understand why people, particularly who are in places that that are right in the middle of some of the traffic, and I understand why people are uncomfortable and there are issues about it. But it's such a, a impractical impossibility. And... <laughs> Yeah, I'm like you, and, and again, unless you are you going to put, you know, are you going to put machine gun? Wait, I just and, don't even know if it's practical. But I don't know the metric for wall, <laughs> for like plausibility. Like right. maybe it is. I mean, maybe it is plausible. I'm just saying I don't know. Like, what are the simulations, algorithms? Is it Mario Brothers? To, if Mario can skip over the wall, well, or? you know, I mean, I've seen the wall that they that they're building in between the West Bank and Israel, and it's a combination of a lot of different things. There's no, I mean, that's a much smaller piece of territory with a much more significant issue, and uh, most of it's not a wall. It's electric fence. It's different things. So uh, I, it's just the whole idea is, is remarkable. My friend Chris O'Donnell, who, was, who is, has had an incredibly successful real estate career in University of San Philadelphia, and 
uh, you know, is out of the brokerage agent kind of thing and just manages rental properties. It's been very successful. He owns a house at 41st and Pine. It has a white wall around it. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so I could see just. I feel like the bunker here. Are, we don't have enough square footage to have no, a wall. But a wall. if I could, if we had like thirty percent more, I would be tempted. Not for protection, just for aesthetic, like a wall. But mine would have an open gate for just... Steve Lipples. There's always room <laughs> for Steve Lipples, at least to my front. Porch. A true American. A, a true American. American. He is a true American. Uh, you know, but if you stop and even think about it, it's not what we were going to talk about at all tonight. But if you thought Hadrian's Wall, uh, the Maginot Line. The, the Great Wall of China, in many ways. Pink Floyd, the wall. The Pink Floyd, the wall. But those walls, basically, several of them were totally ineffective. And a couple of them were built after after they really were relevant. So it's it's one of those things that it's, uh, I don't know. Anyway. The national and the problem is the turrets need to turn. Because <laughs> you just go through Belgium. <laughs> like, there are problems. <laughs> right. Turrets need to turn. That's right, Yeah. That's the trouble, you know. The generals who plan for the next war are still fighting the last one, and that's part of the history of the problem. Why so many young men die in the beginning of wars because of the people that lead them. That, and again, I've said it once. I'll say it again. We just need to abide by the foreign <laughs> policy of the Princess Bride. Never fight a land war in Asia. I mean, there that just the countless lives that would be saved if we just said, "Hey." We're just going to have this as a principle. That If I was in a presidential debate, if I was Gary Johnson, I'd just say Princess Bride. That's it. If we had just done that. So those are things we are certain about. Right? Certain. Absolutely. Uh, Epistemically. Uh, but we are uh, going to begin venture into the area of the nature of belief and unbelief. A couple things have inspired us, and you're actually writing a series for Mockingbird right now. Yeah, one was published today. Today. And it's very good, and it's worth looking at. And you, in your unique way, uh, tie together film, a very good film that was not appreciated, plus some very— f- I'm glad you said that. I, I f- I'm glad you said that, because I feel like K-Pax is an excellent film. And but, you don't her- hear it written about very often. You don't hear it, like, critically reviewed. I mean, and Kev- it, I feel like Kevin Spacey and Jeff Bridges. I mean, yeah, that's a, the, one of the best— Two of the better actors that are out there, Yeah. And again, you tied in with theology and philosophy. You do a great job. And on our last episode, um, I mentioned that I would like to talk. Not, I don't really want to talk about what Bart Campolo had to say because it doesn't really merit talking about that. But you know, it was interesting. A number of things I think came up for me in terms of what is the nature of unbelief, and also I, I felt sad uh, listening to a story a bit. Because it reminds me of the different ways, the different pathways that well-intentioned religious traditions do that actually set up a well-worn path to unbelief as well. I mean, there's an evangelical path to unbelief. There is a Catholic path to unbelief. There's a liberal Protestant path to unbelief. But you repeat yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Remind me what uh, the professor at Princeton said about uh, you know, who is a really a, a very generous atheist, a brilliant guy. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. He said, uh, Jeff Stout, who's the best teacher I've ever seen in a classroom. But he said that, you know, he, uh, he was talking— Professor of philosophy, right? Uh, religious studies. Religious he, studies, Religious right. studies. Who, it's funny because Eric Gregory, who is one of the best Christian ethicists or ethicists in general working in the field, Jeff Stout, the atheist, 
saved his candidacy. Like when everybody's like, we could have a normative. And Stalin is like, what? But you in Buddhist studies, you don't have norms. You in Islamic studies, you what? Just because his norms are Christian, that means we vote against him. So Jeff was a, but Jeff said in reviewing um, a book of James Gustafson's, who was the, you know one of the deans of of liberal Protestant ethics in the 20th century. He said the problem with Gustafson's ethics is a guy like Gustafson gives atheists like me less and less in which to disbelieve. <laughs> so, so I mean, that's, you know, it's just, uh, there are say, not all paths to unbelief are, are created equal. No, and I, I think, you know, it, it is an interesting, um, it's an interesting to think about. Uh, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time, in, naturally, because of our professions and our, our interest and our, our vocations, uh, in our own spiritual walks on thinking about what, what is the nature of belief? What does it mean for, for me to grow deeper in my faith in God through Christ? What does it mean for me to help people who are on the border or people who are you know losing faith or coming to faith or teaching to faith? But I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, what is the nature of unbelief um, and its relationship to believing? We actually did talk about this early on, I think, uh, in one of those podcasts when we were, we were talking about the Czech thinker. I just lost his name. Uh, I don't think we ever aired that. We never aired that. We will yeah. revisit that. that Maybe next the, that yeah. was, that was one of the lost tapes because it's actually it was a lost tape. It's one of the lost tapes. So we'll we'll say that because I think it'll probably be a good follow up for this one. But talk to me a little bit. I mean, you obviously um, are worth you know thinking about going into the conversation with, with Bar Kempel. I know that you've gotten a lot of feedback about that conversation. So uh, tell me some of your thoughts right now about. The nature of belief and unbelief. Yeah, I think that that that's. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about the conversation, which was why I wrote the piece today that I did, is that I think that you we can look at belief and unbelief as a kind of anthropological, you know, cipher. Like, okay, there there these kinds of people they're believers, and these kinds of people are they're unbelievers. But the truth is, we all are participating, we're all people of faith. I mean, like to get out of bed in the morning requires huge amounts of trust in things that you can't, you don't have evidence for. And yet they're not completely out of the blue or irrational either, but but they're somewhere between, you know, like they're not like Santa Claus, but they're not also like a sure thing. Although they might be probable, you know, and depending on your disposition, if you're sunny and rosy-eyed or if you're cynical, <laughs> the things that are probable in your belief category may be you know, more or less populated. But I think that, that this category of belief or unbelief isn't something that exists out there with, between two kinds of people, but in all of us, in our own hearts, in our own souls, in our own stories, we're always believing and unbelieving. You know, we're always like, you know, using dogmas to doubt and then doubting our dogmas. And so, like, I feel like that is, is a more helpful starting place than sort of saying, well, there's a group of people here that are believers because they hold to some kind of transcendent reality or right. they are part of some tradition that stretches back before the Enlightenment or, you know, they go to the Scientology temple or whatever right. and do their e-readers. I, I, feel, I feel like we all have beliefs that we think are not absurd, you know, and yet we'd have a tough time if you sat down with you know somebody who was in the Saudi royal family who did a PhD at Cambridge 
had a higher IQ than you, was more accomplished academically than you, and yet was just really strident about women shouldn't drive. Like, how do you, you know, like, at some point, like, it's not a matter of intelligence. No. It's not a matter of exposure. There's just, there are convictions that can be challenged or checked, but it's not like that person's are, you know, completely naive and, and, and yours are completely objective and, right. and, and a result of a kind of intellectual purification process that is, you know, indisputable. <laughs> And beyond reproach. Well, you know, you uh, you and I were talking the other night on the phone, and you quoted uh, you quoted somebody who referenced a Sam Harris reference. Oh yeah, I actually have the book right here, Bill. It's uh, Ted <laughs> Peters who I actually yeah I didn't even know that you had it right there. That's good. I, I didn't have it on purpose. It just happened. <laughs> this is providence. Oh, Take God. that. There we go. <laughs> Evidence that demands a verdict. So yes, I could, uh, the Sam Harris says, and I could actually quote the... Uh, yeah, and again, for those of you who don't realize, Sam Harris is one of the uh, more interesting of the uh, new atheists. I, I always thought it was funny. I guess you have to have a byline when you write about them, but uh, it just strikes me funny, like new atheist, uh, as opposed to the old atheist. But uh, at any rate, Sam Harris wrote a, uh, wrote a series of books that were... Um, were pretty influential, and I think of all those atheist books, he was actually one of the, my my favorite of all of those. I actually sat down and read all of them. Yeah, this is from his first book, I think, The End of Faith. He has a PhD in neuroscience, and it was interesting because you know one of the things that was interesting in the conversation, Bart said he would never critique any of the new atheists because you know we need avant garde people. So this is avant garde. Uh, this is uh, Ted Peters in, again, a book called Sin B- Boldly, Justifying Faith for Fragile and Broken Souls. Great book. Forward by Martin Marty, who's a great, one of the, maybe the great American church historian. Uh, one of. Yeah. Let's get back to what Sam Harris says. As a cult of death, Islam is a threat to us. Islam is our enemy. What should we do? Harris prescribes a twofold defense. First, we should teach rationality at the gulag. Now, they didn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> We should teach our children to think critically and to evaluate religious claims on the basis of evidence. Once we've examined religious beliefs, we will discover that they are unfounded. (laughs) We will emerge from our outmoded religious beliefs into the freedom of a truly liberal society. If teaching reason is less than successful, however, then we should move toward a second form of self-defense, nuclear war. (laughs) (laughs) No, and he's not, by the way. This uh, is a paraphrase. He's going to quote in a minute. Did I just say nuclear war? Yes, I did. According to Harris, the threat posed to Islam might call for a nuclear strike. Quoting Harris, quote, The only thing likely to ensure our survival may be a nuclear first strike of our own. Needless to say, this would be an unthinkable crime, as it would kill tens of millions of innocent civilians in a single day. But it may be the only course of action available to us, given what Islamists believe. End quote. And Peter said, let me summarize the logic of Harris's call to arms. Because of what Islamists believe, we are justified in dropping a nuclear bomb on them. Sam Harris, make America great again. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it always it reminds me. Uh, when I was working, uh, first working with uh, high school kids, I was working with a lot of urban kids. And, of course, they uh, Please and, tell me you're, you're saying you were thinking about dropping a nuclear bomb. No, <laughs> I love them deeply, and uh, but uh, they were in a school system in a community that was not sympathetic to their problems, and a couple of them, well, not a couple of them, many of them got in trouble, and it was right, this was a pretty conservative area that I was living in, and it was right when uh, 
Jerry Falwell and all those guys were talking about how the secular humanists were taking over the school. And I was trying to get somebody to help this kid. And I was so frustrated. Finally, I slammed something down on the desk in the office. And I said, would someone please find me a secular humanist that would care for this kid? (laughs) (laughs) But what was interesting, the people that were probably doing the most violence to these kids that were in the system were burned out humanists who had turned sour because people didn't behave and didn't respond to their reasoned, enlightened, uh, warm fuzzies. And they became some of the hardest people to deal with in trying to help people. Yeah, and I don't think, it's very interesting, because I don't think that atheism or secular humanism necessarily leads to rosy-eyed optimism. I mean, look at Nietzsche, look at Freud. Look, I yeah. mean, I think that... That's probably more honest. Yeah, I mean... I mean, look at Darwin. Right, Darwin, yeah. I mean, yeah. you can... You can uh, David Bentley Hart wrote a piece a couple years ago on First Things, and he was talking about, he was surveying some of the new atheist literature, and he said that Nietzsche, when he said God is dead, Nietzsche was not optimistic. I mean, he was not optimistic that there would come a new mythology or spirituality that could replace what was lost. And, you know, I remember Hart says, for Nietzsche, just because something was true doesn't mean it was good. And and likewise, just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's true. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that Nietzsche is sometimes, he really was a prophetic voice for what was going to happen in the 20th century. Oh, yeah. He's right on like everything. I mean, there's just, I mean. I mean, because the amount of genocide and destruction that was really done by um, atheistic ideologies, or at least non. Which he would have opposed. I mean, because he was not a guy. I mean, he would have seen people like, Hitler and Stalin is is not the Ubermensch, but the last man. I mean, like yeah, no, he was his he was his thought was totally misappropriated. I mean, I feel like if you if you want to see like what Nietzsche worried about, it's like in Fight Club when uh, what's Ed Norton's characters on the toilet just ordering stuff from IKEA. I mean, that's what right. Nietzsche was afraid with God being dead that we wouldn't. I mean, that's why he's trying to push people back to pre-Socratic Greece. I mean, he thinks there's something, and again, we could fault Nietzsche on that. I mean. I don't know that if we sat around and watched pre-Socratic plays, you know, I don't know what it would do. But it, it would do something. But I don't know I, that it would I, help I, us. I, I'm open to it. You know, well, of course, you mean, that's... That would be, that was... <laughs> you're like... I mean, I'm Garrick. Give you're, me a ticket. I mean, you can't see Bill is glowing. I mean, there's an angelic <laughs> glow. I mean, this is like... Uh, but yeah, I, I just think that there's a kind of... But Nietzsche's atheism is, is one that I continue to... I mean, I remember the first time I read The Genealogy of Morals, and I just... I was in Princeton, and I I kept taking breaks to pace because I thought, gosh, this is a picture of the world that it's not one I'm inhabiting, or I don't know if I could inhabit, but actually it seems like it one could want to inhabit it. And I think that, that there's some forms of atheism which I find incredibly compelling. And I think part of the reason is that part of the reason those kinds of atheisms are possible is because the God who created the world, as uh, Eberhard Jungel said, quoting uh, Bonhoeffer, I think, is the one who allowed himself to be pushed outside the camp and crucified. So it's like sort of, well, why in the world is the, you know, can is there so many conditions that make godlessness possible? Because the God who's create, who created us is not just us in big letters. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's interesting. I, I agree with you that there's a lot of constructive things that, and intellectually honest atheism can can help us kind of strip away a little bit from superstition, projections, and things that are in the faith. I mean, Simone Weil, in many ways, you know, the point of 
the you know vastness of the cosmos, the seeming silence and absence of God. You know, it, it's either an empty silence or it's a pregnant silence. And you know, that's her point of departure is when we kind of have lost everything, we're ready to begin to gain things. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah, I completely agree. I think that on some level, I think really insightful and existentially kind of uh, developed atheists or existentially present atheists are gift. I mean, they like they help put reality into relief. Yeah, I think it, there's there's a there is certainly in this day and age where American Christianity has so tied itself into a marketing principle. It's tied itself into in 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 its reaction to the inevitable post World War II bust after the boom of Christianity in this country. I think the panic and uh, the panacea, and I mean, we're flushing our seminaries down the toilet and watering them down even more so. So we are literally preparing a whole generation of pastors to do nothing for their people of any significance. And Bill, tell us what you really feel about the yeah, future of seminary education. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, don't sugarcoat it. Everybody, this is after dark. People can handle it. Right. <laughs> You're welcome. And and the idea, too, that we're constantly, you know, we're building sound stages, not not cathedrals. And that's okay. I mean, maybe a sound stage is the cathedral of the of the 21st century. But I I I think there's there's a sense where we we've missed the point and and rather than listening to the honest critique of a lot of a lot of forces out there um you know i think the church has adjusted to some of the honest critique of psychology some of the insights that have come from that uh, many of us are trying to remind people that science is not the enemy of faith you know and uh reclaiming the very rich christian tradition of pursuing knowledge and pursuing science uh and uh i think again tearing down stripping down some of the idols that we call our faith is a very constructive thing. I do say, I do want to say, but there's something different about um, an honest atheism or an atheism that's that's been arrived at through philosophical reflection as opposed to apostasy. I mean, giving up the faith, losing your faith, denouncing the faith is of a different order. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I because Nietzsche, like, I think, I mean, Nietzsche was a son of a Lutheran minister. When he read scripture, in church, as a kid, people said they, they, that people cried, and so I mean, you could, but that's you could put him as an apostate. You yeah. could, I don't know, like, well, but did he, did he consciously renounce something that he fully espoused at one point? He did. He went to too big to study theology. But again, I asked the question. Well, that's true, Jeremy. I mean, that's not really that's not a profession of faith. I, mean, I suppose that's not really. I mean, let's face it: the two. Most important, uh, arguably the two most important Protestant theologians of the 20th century. Karl Barth never read the Bible until he was a pastor. It's true. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer never went to church until he was ordained. So, and both, you know, Bonhoeffer's reflection on the church and uh, Barth's reflections on the scripture are two of the most profound thinking that happened uh, in the 20th century, but that doesn't mean that they knew what they were Don't doing. Don't let that be a lesson to you seminarians. <laughs> maybe to see if they're Go right. to church and read the Bible. Maybe maybe the deconstruction of our seminary education is, even as we're speaking, creating the 21st century Barts and Bonhoeffer. What do I know? Yeah, I mean, I think also, like, with regard to atheism, that there is something about, I mean, anything can be, you know, anything can be thick, anything can be thin. And I think that some forms of atheism, as as some forms of Christian belief, like, sound like 
Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings where he says, you know, I just, because he's been like sapped because he, he's the ring has been taken off, you know, and they come back. I think it's the Return of the King. And he says, I just feel like too little butter spread over too much bread. Mm, yeah. and, and I think that that, like in any kind of, whether it's, uh, Christian faith, you know, Jewish faith, atheism, there's a, there's, uh, there are kinds of atheism I found that are, that seem like, you know, and again, they're not things, it's not where I live, but like, it does seem like a lot of butter, like, you know, that's adequate to cover the bread. Yeah, no. And, and I think that the kind of atheism that I find less inspiring and the kind of Christian faith, you know, that, that, oftentimes not because of brokenness of spirit, but because of like marketing and things like that. I mean, there's a kind of like beauty of little faith born out through pilgrimage and suffering and brokenness that has the, the, the Bilbo Baggins kind of thing. Yeah. But then there's a kind of like, it's not about pilgrimage. It's not about existential stuff. It's about, Hey, the smoke machine and the state is creating that effect. And I think in the, in that sense, it's That's like, where the tragedy is. Yeah, it's like the burned out effect in New York. You know, the the they were constantly having revivals and revivals of people finally got tired of being revived. I mean, I grew up in a kind of Christianity that was very experientially driven. Uh, they had revival services twice a year, so I guess they kind of expected us to lose our faith about every six months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Um, but fortunately, that was not that was not the seed of faith that was planted in me. Uh, it was it was the remarkable love and faith of my grandmother, who just was the most amazing person I ever knew. And I think that I've always said, you know, I've tried to lose my faith lots of different ways and tried to talk myself out of believing. I said, my grandmother's Jesus is a continuing argument that I've never been able to quite overturn. Yeah, and when I was talking with Bart, you know. It, it's interesting because he came to faith in early adolescence, probably not that far biographically in years as when I came to faith. And what he was saying is that I just kind of was a good person, and I was so good that I wanted to be with the do-gooders. And, you know, the supernatural stuff, the salvific language, that was the cost of admission right. to be among a good person. For me, it saved me. Yeah, because of some things in childhood, it saved me. Yeah. Like I was literally saved. Like yeah. it, it, it opened up a pathway for healing that continues. Uh, you know, if your mother, father forsake you, the Lord will lift you up. And so it's that it, that is real, and it continues to be real. And I pray that it is real for all of our listeners. That that uh, that kind of grace and transcendence that we meet. In the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit is is present for people, especially those who need it in desperate and dark hours. Amen. To be continued. Just a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train going Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit He took the midnight train Going anywhere 
Share